Do you ever think about the call takers and dispatchers at 911? They're the unsung heroes of our public safety system, the first among first responders. Their jobs are stressful and demanding, yet they keep us safe and calm in life or death situations every day. Let's join together and thank the professionals at 911 for being there when we need them most, for saving lives and protecting communities. Show your support for 911. Visit thankyou911.org. That's thankyou911.org. Hello and welcome back to 10 Questions. This week's guest is Limo, the accountant turned stand-up star, radio host, TV host and actor. I first came across the Adelaide-raised Anthony Limo Lehman when he teamed up with Will Anderson for their national drive show, Will and Limo. I loved his work on Before the Game, where he cracked football-wise alongside Dave Hughes, Peter Hellier, Andy Marr, and Samantha Lane. Since then, he and Joe Stanley took Gold FM's breakfast show to number one before being fired. He talks about that here, and he's since moved on to hosting Breakfast on SAFM. I like Limo's work ethic and the fact that he's performed to Australian troops and army bases in East Timor as well as across the Middle East. He talks about that here as well in an extremely moving way. His new show is called Be Nice and it's at the Rhino Room at the Adelaide Fringe starting on February 22. Limo said it was originally going to be called Don't Be a Fuckwit but he thought that might scare people off. I began proceedings by asking Limo how he thinks his fellow workers would describe him. My current fellow workers are my SFM breakfast team in Adelaide, and they describe me on a daily basis on that show as old. <laughs> so <laughs> that's the that's the running on air gag at the moment because I'm the oldest member of the team. So whenever there's an old, and it's stupid, but it also makes me laugh. Whenever there's an old reference, so for example, a couple of weeks ago, the oldest pub in England closed. It was built in 792 AD, if you can believe it. 1,229 years old. And it closed because of COVID. All right. Survived Viking invasions and Black Death. <laughs> but for my co-host, the joke from my co-host is, oh, weren't you there on opening night? <laughs> <laughs> you and Aristotle. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, they would, my radio co-host would say I'm old. Hopefully they would also say I'm funny. Yes. Uh but in the comedy community, which I, you know, you have you have all your work colleagues that you do different projects with yeah. or radio shows with or TV shows, but I view sort of the stand-up comedy world as a big, sprawling workplace where we're all colleagues. And I think those work colleagues, oh, look, they'd probably hopefully say, you know, I'm a good bloke. I think they'd probably say I'm a good bloke who's fun yeah. to have a drink with and hang out with. Yeah. Although I once was talking to Steady Eddie and I can't remember who the comedian was, but someone else in the group said, oh, yeah, he's a really good bloke. And Steady Eddie goes, oh, you don't want to be remembered as a good bloke. (laughs) (laughs) What did he relate it to being like harmless or something? Well, his, his point was, if people are calling you a good bloke, it means you're not very funny. Oh, for fuck's Cause, sake. Because if you were funny, the first thing they would say is, oh, he's really funny. <laughs> but if the first thing they say is, he's a good bloke, then you mustn't be very funny. Or you're an extra good bloke, mate, in your case. <laughs> I'll assume I'm an extra good bloke. <laughs> but 
I feel like we never get perspective on our age. No. So, you know, I remember being 19 and looking at 21 year olds and thinking, oh, yeah. There's pops over there. Look what he's up. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or when I was 28 and I was just getting into comedy and just getting a bit of traction, I lied and said on my CV I was 26. Because for some reason in my head, that made a huge difference. Yeah, yeah. Because 28 was nearly 30, but 26, yeah. hey, he's in his 20s, this guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's got a future. So you never, I've always, and I remember being, you know, 27 or 28 and being in a nightclub in Adelaide. This It was a recovery nightclub called Rise, which used to open at midnight <laughs> and close at seven or eight in the morning or something. And I remember being there one night, I was 27 or 28, and seeing this guy who me and my mate knew who was 33 and he was on a podium dancing and me and my mate were just talking to him. Mind you, we're in a nightclub at 3 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> but we were looking at this guy going to each other, oh, my God, how sad. Yeah. I, hope I'm, I, <laughs> I hope I'm not doing that when I'm 33. Oh, mate, and now we just look at, oh, to be 33. Oh, oh mate, oh, to be yeah. 33. So... You know, I've always <laughs> thought that two or three years older than I am is old, but I'm getting a better perspective. I'm getting a much better perspective on that now. But from a professional sense, I started being referred to referred to by other people as old when I became the oldest person on the team. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And conversely, I always tease. So I used to work with Bridget Duclos and radio on gold. And because Bridge was older than me, I did all these same old jokes on Bridge. Oh, okay. So it's tradition. It's just a, it's just a thing, yeah, for the <laughs> oldest person on the team. And if you listen to, you know, if you listen to Kate, Tim and Joel Creasy, they always tease Kate Ritchie about being old. Oh. <laughs> she cops all the same. So I think it's this radio trope that just exists in every team-based show where you mock the oldest person on the team. You know what? Allowing yourself to be mocked for being old probably stops you from being sacked for being old. Moving on to question two, what's the most unhelpful feedback Limo's received? I wish, reflecting on my radio career, I'd recorded every conversation I've ever had with a program director because there's just been so much unhelpful feedback over the years. But more than unhelpful, inconsistent feedback. Yeah. This is literally two days in a row I got this, right, from one particular program director. You're talking about yourself too much. People don't, people don't care about If you want to have conversations about yourself, we'll go, go have it at home or go and catch up with some friends, right? The listeners don't care. It needs, it needs to be about them. Oh, okay, all right, no worries. Literally the next day, literally the next day, it goes, uh, we've had a bit of feedback. The listeners don't feel as though they know you well enough. <laughs> and in that moment i'm like well i feel as though i know you well enough you're a terrible program director (laughs) was that Um, early on or was that you know that was in it roughly in the middle yeah right of my career that was so yeah you've had lots of stuff from program directors over the years and then and then there's comedy gigs the the two big ones for me at comedy gigs are and this happens a lot at corporates so Corporate comedy gigs can be challenging, right? And it's definitely a different room. It's not a comedy night. It's an awards night or it's a Christmas party or it's some other get together. And you're a bit of entertainment stuck in the middle. 
and I've become pretty good at them, I think. But they're but they're challenging gigs. This one I've had more than once. I go on stage, I perform, and because I do a lot of them, I've got a good perspective on what I consider to be a successful corporate gig. Mm. And I've come off stage and thought to myself, you know what, that was pretty good. I'm pretty happy with that. Got got a lot of laughs early. Had a great bit in the middle there. Blah blah blah. Good engagement. People were you know pretty good. And then you come off stage, and the the organizer from the company will go, yeah, it's a tough crowd, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> come on really <laughs> i actually oh, thought that was pretty good that's yeah oh dear oh yeah. dear feedback and the other one is and this is i think australians i think this is an australian trait could be english as well because we're there are a lot of similarities between mm. us and english australians struggle to give a clean compliment and what i mean by that is You'll finish a gig and someone will come up to you and they'll say, oh, mate, you were brilliant tonight. I bloody love it. I mean, my wife walked out, but I thought you were great. I really do. You know, or, or, or they'll say, you know, I was dragged here by my mates tonight and I thought you were shit before I got here, but you weren't bad. Oh, dear. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm or sorry. they'll say, you were really funny tonight because I normally just listen to you on the radio and that's, you know, always thought you weren't that funny. But live, you're not bad. Wow. <laughs> like, just say the good bit. Yeah. Sake. So, but in amongst all the unhelpful feedback, I do have a, I do have a weird one. And that, and this has happened to me on and off over about 10 years. Most recently, it happened oh, three weeks ago. I was in Echuca. I did a gig with Damien Fleming, a sportsman's day in Echuca. And so Flem all day is emceeing, is teasing. Limo's coming up later on. Limo's going to be on stage. You're going to love Limo. All right, here he is, Limo. I get up, I do half an hour on stage. And, and I do well, right? I, I have a good gig. I do really well. And I come on stage, blokes are coming. It was a, blo it was a big bloke's lunch, right? Uh, good on you, Limo. Bloody hilarious. Loved it. Da, 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 da. And my name's up on a banner as well behind the stage with phlegm. And then this guy comes up to me and he goes, hilarious, mate. You were bloody great today. Oh, and by the way, loved you on Celebrity Apprentice. <laughs> now, now who he's talking about, he's talking about Whipper, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I get it so often where Michael Voss once said to me before the game, we're in an ad break and he goes, hey, that six till seven highlights thing that you do with Fitzy on Nova up in Brisbane. Bloody love listening to that, mate. Oh, mate. Bossy. I said, yeah. Should know better. And I, but it was because it was Vossi. I didn't say anything. I just said thanks, mate. <laughs> <laughs> he took it. I wouldn't. I wouldn't confuse you with Whipper. That's interesting. Yeah. So people think we sound really similar, but people must think we look similar. Yeah. As yeah. well. So they mistake it. But I have never got him in the way that Moon Man got me once. Moon Man was in Melbourne in the city, and he was walking into a restaurant or something, and his three kids came up on bikes, and they go, "Limo." Hey, it's Limo, Limo. How you going, Limo? And Moonman turns around and says, yeah, I am Limo. You can all get fucked, little idiots. <laughs> fuck off. I'm not talking to any of you. They go, oh, fuck off, Limo. Yeah, no, what are you going to get fucked? And he just starts abusing these kids. Oh, God, mate. <laughs> Thanks, Lawrence. And did you go on radio? How do you, how do you kind of clean that situation? Huh? You can't. <laughs> well, you can't. You can't. 
Those kids have spent the last five years telling everyone they said that Limo is a massive asshole. The Moon Man is, of course, Lawrence Mooney, and his interview is two episodes before this one if you want to check it out. Now, moving on to question two. What is the failure Limo most cherishes? It's it's tough. There's t- two that have been good to me over the years. So the first one is when I'd been doing stand-up comedy for less than six months and I'd been, I'd probably done a dozen gigs. I decided that it was time for me to go on red faces. So I (laughs) applied and went to this audition and then I got on to do red faces on Hey Hey It's Saturday. And, you know, I I told everyone I was doing red faces and because I was getting a few laughs doing stand-up, I thought, well, this, I'm going to kill it. I said, in fact, in my head, genuinely, I'm thinking, well, I'm going to win. I'll win 500 bucks because I watch red faces every week and the acts are always shit. I'll get a few laughs and win. So I sign up. I tell everyone I know I'm playing footy. At the time, I was playing footy for Adelaide University, right, which has 400 registered players. So everyone at the club knows I'm going to be on red faces. I'm working in an accounting firm. So everyone in the accounting firm know, or my friends know, my family, everyone. And I do red faces. And the first act is four blokes from Adelaide who do these song parodies. And they score about, I don't know, 12 or something. Then on comes this woman who does a traditional Paraguayan dance whilst balancing a pot in her head. <laughs> she scores, I think, 15. And I'm waiting in the wings thinking, 15, pff, I'm going to win this. That's 500 bucks. This is amazing. This is going back to 1994, right? I'm going to win this. And then I go out and I did not get one, like not even a titter, nothing, not one laugh. It was an appalling routine. I was not TV ready at the time. It was so bad. I can still remember. Russell Gilbert, right, who's one of the kindest, most embracing, loving men in comedy, right, that you could possibly ever meet. I can still remember when I walked out and I was introduced as a stand-up comedian, I looked past a camera and I saw Russell Gilbert and he just did that thing where he has a huge smile and he's kind of bouncing up and down on the spot and he was smiling at me and he was, I could tell he really wanted me to do well and he was excited for me and it gave me a little pump up. And then after about a minute, I looked again and he was kind of half had his back turned and his head down and was kind of sneaking looks up at the crowd. Oh, you can tell he was embarrassed for me. Oh, nice. I thought, oh, no, this is not good. So then I get gonged out. Sophie Formica, former Home and Away starlet, gives me one. David Dixon from Indecent Obsession gave me five. And Red, Sim- <laughs> and Red Simons gave me zero <laughs> for a grand total of six. Oh, my God. Um, and that was probably the biggest audience that's ever to this day seen me do stand-up because they used to rate, they'd rate like 3 million on a Saturday night. Oh, buddy. And what made it even worse, Adam's Zwar, is it was one of the episodes of Hey Hey that was pre-recorded on a Friday. They used to occasionally do this. So when it was played back on the Saturday, I was back home with all my footy mates. And because there's this like deluded click inside my head, a part of me over that 24 hours had spun it in my head yeah, yeah, yeah. to make it, it feel like it's going to be okay. Yeah. And then I watched it with a pub full of footy mates. And <laughs> the punishment from them was relentless. 
So, and and how long did it take to get over it? Because we've all had failures, like I mean, different ways. But you know. you know what? It actually, honestly, didn't take me that long to get over it. But why I love that failure is because you know, in you need a thick skin to survive in comedy. And that was a real test for me because I did get everyone I saw after that thought that my pursuit of a career was laughable. Mm. They'd all seen me. Every person I bumped into after that had seen me on red faces. Yeah. And they were all like, really? What, you're still doing this? Yeah. And I literally had a bloke a few years later who I used to work with. He used to be in the next office to me when I was working as an accountant. And he saw me one day in the street and he said, oh, what are you doing now? So I said, I'm pursuing comedy. And he was like, had this, like I told him I was becoming an astronaut. Right? <laughs> he this look at his, why are you still doing that? It was like, he was looking at me like I was pursuing an Olympic dream. I'm still going to, I'm still going to win gold in the hundred at the next Olympics. He was just, he couldn't be, he was just so gobsmacked. And I know he would have left that conversation and gone and said to people, but Lima was still like, how many clues do you need? That this is not the career for you. So I love oh, wow. that it was that every single person looking at that would have said, he needs to give up now. And so there's something about, so I cherish it for that reason. And I've now, and I got over it quickly and I was never hard on myself because I just wasn't ready. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. if I'd been doing comedy for 10 years or 20 years and bombed like that on television, then I'd go... Geez, what am I doing wrong here? Yeah, because yeah. I'd been doing it six months. I mean, you, I, you could never, ever expect me to have been good at it. So that's the biggest thing. When people say, what do you need to be to be a comedian? I would say you have to be funny. You have to be prepared to work hard. And you need a thick skin. Because yeah. if you've got a thin, thin skin, you just have to die a couple of times and you'll, and you'll jump out of this game. Yeah. Um, so, and also, there's a good story attached to it as well. It's the first time I was ever on television is, you know, people normally build an audience. I started with the biggest possible audience on television and it's been dwindling ever since Adam's life. <laughs> wow, no, that's brilliant. Was there another one that you said you had two? Yeah, and the other one that I love, and I love this just because I, you know, it's a great, it's a great story and it's kind of rock and roll. It was at the Fools Festival in 2009 or 2008 going into 2009. And there was a tent that held about two and a half thousand people. And at a music festival, you know how the kids of today, right? They get the schedule for the music festival and all the different colored stages oh, yeah. and they get their highlighter pens and they mark out where they're going to be at what time. So they can see all their favorite super cool bands, etc. Well, the, so what that means is it's important that everything runs on time at a music festival. Yeah. Otherwise, Millennials and Gen Zers get, they start getting anxiety of everything <laughs> perfectly for them. So I was in a tent that was running 30 minutes late. Now, I, I can't remember exactly what I was running, but it was running 30 minutes late. So the tent filled with people who wanted to see Licky Lee, a Swedish indie pop act. Right? <laughs> but instead, the MC walked out and said, uh, ladies and gentlemen, coming up uh, shortly, Licky Lee, crowd, two and a half thousand people erupt. But first, <laughs> some comedy. They start booing. Boo! All of them start booing. 
And then the MC, which was Danny McGinley, looks over at me as if to say, are you sure? And I'm like, bro, I got this. So he introduces me. As I'm walking onto the stage, I haven't even got to the microphone, I start being pelted with empty beer cans. Oh, my God. And they just fly, empty beer cans are flying. And I'm kind of dodging them. I start doing my spot. And, you know, it's not working because they don't want to see me. But I'm annoyed at them because they're being rude. So I keep going. And then I get hit in the ribs with a full can of beer. Right? Oh, shit. It came from, I kind of saw it coming out the corner of my eye. Hits me in the ribs. So my first thought is that really hurt. My second thought is I knew that the queue for beer tickets was two hours long. So I thought that guy must really fucking hate me if he's prepared to queue up for another two hours to oh throw that beer. God. So that's hit me in form. If I had my wits about me, I would have dumped the beer can, opened it and sculled it. That would have won him back, but I didn't do that. So then I thought to myself, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying here for my full 15 minutes. Yeah. Because I want you people to suffer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I just lent on my microphone and started doing a lot of, so what's going on? <laughs> what have you been up to? At one point, a chorus of in the, in the sort of, vein of Hadley's a wanker started Limo's a wanker in one corner of tent. People just started yelling in the chorus of fuck off, fuck off, fuck off. At one point, there was a girl at the front who could barely have been 18. She was tiny little thing. She was squashed up against the barrier and she had these big giant sunglasses on. And I'll never forget this little face with the big giant sunglasses. And she just looked up at me on the stage and she just goes, what with her arms out she goes what are you doing <laughs> uh, <laughs> so and then oh. there they were just yelling abuse it was it was brutal and they were saying the beer cans were coming the whole the empty ones were coming through the whole thing and i got one laugh which was right at the end and i said you know what this has been a shit show but it's a music festival whatever it's rock and roll good on you you're all having a good time. You've paid good money to be here. I hope you all have a great weekend. Except for the guy that hit me with the full beer can, I hope you overdose and die. <laughs> and they all laughed. <laughs> good on you, mate. I'm, I'm proud of you. And, and I'd buy, you know, I'd buy it just like, fuck, I'm going to stay here. I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. And then I, so I kind of, I was pretty, I was rattled though after that. I really kind of, yeah, yeah. you know, I was quite, quite anxious and on edge. I mean, you know, like it, almost like you might be if you've like nearly been in a fight or perhaps mm-hmm. been in a fight, you know, I was yeah. feeling quite rattled. And, but as I was walking off stage, Snob Skriller, who's a hip hop artist from Sydney, as I was walking off, he grabs me by the arm, stops, looks me in the eye and goes, bro, that was fucking dope. <laughs> wow. Yeah, because it's kind of, I mean, I know he's a hip hop artist, but it is like, it is punkish to actually just stay out there and go, let's do this. Stay there. And then later I saw Bill Burr in Philadelphia at a Opie and Anthony show. Have you ever seen this? So there's a whole bunch. No. And it happened about the same time as my experience. And I saw what Bill Burr did and a part of me went, oh, I wish I'd done that. Yeah. So. It was an Opie and Anthony radio show, live show. 
So full of Opie and Anthony fans and the Opie and Anthony fans only wanted to see Opie and Anthony, but they had a lineup of comedians. So every comedian that came out, the crowd, they were just assholes, booing, not listening. And then Bill Burr came out and just roasted the crowd in the most brutal way you can imagine. And it's, yeah. and it's brilliant. So, yeah, so I kind of love that that moment for me in comedy. Yeah. The, you know, because you, you as much as you love killing on a good night in a nice room, it's also good to have a bit of colour and movement in your career. Well, and also you, you've proven that you have a really thick skin and, and when people attain success, they think it should be forever and you, there's a certain amount of entitlement that comes with it. And, I mean, I think we all yeah. have gone through that. But, you know, we're in an industry where we're lucky to be working. A hundred percent. There's a great, you know, Jerry Seinfeld has his documentary Comedian, Mm. which is after he comes out of the TV series Seinfeld, and it documents him writing a new hour of material and touring it around America. So it's really just him working the clubs, trying out bits and pieces of gear. And if people haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It's Mm. fascinating insight into writing an hour of material. He's on stage at a comedy club in New Jersey. And you've got to remember, this is two years after Seinfeld, pardon me, after Seinfeld finished. I mean, he's he's one of the most famous people on the planet. Yeah. Right? He's in a comedy club in New Jersey and he's on stage and the, it gets introduced and he starts and then the whole crowd's talking. Everyone's just talking to each other in the crowd. Like no one's watching him. And there's a camera off to the side of stage and Seinfeld walks over to the camera looks into the camera and says, how famous do you have to be? <laughs> and it's just a beautiful moment, which I really loved. Comedy, stand-up, live comedy is a great equaliser. Oh, you yeah. can be the most famous person in the world. If you're not funny, the yeah. crowds just don't fake it. So Limo's proven himself bulletproof when dealing with external enemies. But when I asked him what advice he'd give himself five years ago, he revealed that handling the enemies within was always a little bit more challenging. You know what? Because I was in between jobs five years ago. Yep. So five years ago, I finished up on gold. When you're number one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When we were number one, it was a weird, weird turn of events. Uh, but we got, Joe Stanley and I got boned when we went number one. And, and I kind of, I just panicked and thought, I need to find another job immediately. And I'm a radio guy and I have to have, I can't go a month without a job. I have to sort this. It was a problem to me that needed to be solved immediately. And I wish I, if I could go back five years, I'd just say, just relax, take a deep breath and lift your eyes and have a look around and see, just explore all the options that are before you. But, you know, Ross Rosso, who is an alumni of this podcast, sent me a really beautiful note. You know, it's, it's funny when things like getting sacked happen, it's interesting where support comes from and the form it takes. Mm. But I got sacked and I got this card in the post and I opened it up. In fact, it's here somewhere in my office. I've, I've got it up here somewhere. And it's a card and it was from Rosso. And all it said was, oh, the places you'll go, signed oh, wow. Tim Ross. And it was just a beautiful card. And, but I wish I'd taken that advice. But instead of lifting my eyes and having a look around and saying, okay, well, this is a chance to try something new, 
to explore some different types of projects, to, you know, exercise a few different muscles, I just went into this panic mode and thought, no, 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 I've got to get another radio job straight away. doesn't matter what it is because mm-hmm. that's what I do. You know, I had this thing, if, I, if, if I'm not on radio or TV for a month, <laughs> everyone will forget who I am. Mm-hmm. So I wish I'd, you know, embraced <clears throat> that sentiment a little bit more and had a look around and given myself a better chance to, not that I can't do that now, by the way, but back then was a, was a perfect time for me to explore some other stuff that's out there. And also just to, <clears throat> the other bit of advice I'd give myself is to, wor- we can sometimes in this business become obsessed with what our colleagues make of our career choices mm-hmm. and our artistic decisions. I wish, I'm much better now, but I used to always, if I was making a career choice or an artistic decision, in my head I'd run through a list of colleagues and go, yeah. what would they think of this? What would, as yeah. opposed to going, what would the audience think of this? Yeah. That's, they're what the only Lemo people, think of this, you know? Oh, what, yeah. is, what does Lemo think of this? Yeah, yeah. What does the audience think of this? Not what my mates who, it, for all intents and purposes, are 100% irrelevant. Yeah. For any of those decisions. I. So are you in the place that you want to be now? Yeah, I'm definitely much better now. hundred <clears throat> yeah. percent. Yeah. But you do. And, you know, but it's such a trap in comedy. And I was really bad many years ago where if I was going to do a spot at a club and there was, you know, a certain comedian who I really respected or who I wanted to impress for whatever reason, I would just become obsessed with what they would think of my set mm. as opposed to just doing the set that I wanted to do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And trusting that the crowd would enjoy me and my set. It's really, it's, it's a really interesting. I remember being on stage doing uh, theater with actors and there'd be a director in the audience that they want to impress and their performance would change that night. And it would go from a yes. good performance to something weird. And you go, <laughs> dude, you would fine. Just relax. You know, it's an interesting yeah. thing. I mean, I've done it too, by the way. Yeah, and it's about just having that, you know, that faith in yourself. Yeah, I guess this guy dovetails into it. What about your job keeps you awake at night? Oh, look, that my phone will stop ringing. Yeah, me that's, too. But I imagine that's the same for everyone. You know, there, I remember Lawrence Mooney once said to me, there are five stages of fame. It's who's Adam Zwar, let's try Adam Zwar, let's get Adam Zwar. Let's get someone like Adam Zwar, who's Adam Zwar. Mate, I've seen those on castings. I've seen, you know, it, let's get someone like Adam Zwar. And I'm going, what's going on? I'm fucking here. This is worth 10 grand. I, I need that money. <laughs> I'm right here. Yeah, I was listening to a, a podcast recently. Oh, you know, the Smartless podcast with Jason Bateman and um, yeah. Will Arnett and the, and the other guy. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> they were talking to Jeff Daniels and they were just talking about, you know, the length of his career and how he stayed really relevant through his entire career. And, you know, some of the best work he's ever done has been in the last five years. And Jeff Daniels was just saying how grateful he was that he's been able to act at this level for as long as he has. And he said, because he panicked one day many, many years ago, when he was talking to his agent and they were talking about a role and Jeff Daniels said, Oh, why don't you get this guy? And he named an actor and his agent said, Oh, he's not a thing anymore. 
Oh, <laughs> oh God. <laughs> and I listened to that and I couldn't get it out of my head. So think when you talk about the things that keep you up at night, I remember laying in bed thinking, am I still a thing? <laughs> am I a thing? The people say he's not a thing anymore. What? Where am, where am I at? And uh, <laughs> You need someone to tell you every few months, you're still a thing. Yeah, you're still a thing. You do need, you need reminders. Oh. So it's that, you know, it's that fear of it just <laughs> ending. And you, and you know, you also don't want it to end, you know, if your career is a person, you don't want to be holding its leg as it's walking out. Of the <laughs> you know what I mean? Say, please come back. Please come back. So, yeah, just that idea of, you know, staying relevant. And then so the other thing then that keeps me up is what's, you know, what's my next thing? How do I reinvent myself if I yeah. have to? Yeah. What's, you know, where do I go? What angle do I take? And then there's also, and then on a slightly deeper, you know, I guess more emotional level, I think about, the thing that keeps me awake in terms of my career is my son. And I wonder how my son will see my career when he's old enough to understand it. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And what his, I think, what will his take? And now if I look at it, if I look at it with a clear head, I'm sure he would look at it and go, Oh, dad had a pretty good career. He did yeah. some cool stuff. But you know, when I am in those moments, I go, Ah, oh, he's gonna look back and think, God, dad bloody embarrassed himself. <laughs> you know, oh, you know not I mean? at all. No, how, how old is he, by the way? He's five. five. He's five. I'm sure he's very proud, mate. And you know, yeah, it's 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 kind of exciting, you know, going to school and your dad's, you know, people know your dad or you know, find yeah, your dad yeah. funny and stuff like that. I want to I want to keep doing stand-up at least long enough so that he can see me on stage see me do well and remember it. Yeah, mate. He has been to a couple of gigs now, but he, but I don't think he will be remembering those. It's, yeah, it's something you can do for the rest of your life, stand-up. It's well, you one can. Of yeah, yeah, you can do it, you know. you can. I was actually, t- I did a corporate gig last night and I was talking to a guy there about it and he said, well, you could do this until you're 70. Yeah. I said, well, that's true. I could do it. I don't, I don't want to be doing it when I'm 70, but I could. <laughs> you de- you I could. And- and also that's what's that's what's great about stand-up is it's like say your career doesn't you know not 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 talking not talking about you at all but if, if your career imploded you can always do you can always do a half hour somewhere you've got half hour <laughs> strong material yeah that, you know you're gonna put food on the table cash in hand probably as, as yeah as long as you're funny as long as you're funny that's you right be able to get a gig so what what's an obstacle you've had to overcome you know, personal internal obstacle I've had to overcome is not living in the moment is a real issue I've had over the years. And I know Husey talks about this a lot now, but I've spent, I've spent large portions of my career thinking about the next thing while I'm doing it. So instead of focusing all my attention on this and nailing this first, Mm. I've spent so much time thinking about now, when I finish this, what am I doing after this? And I just, you know, I'd love to, a part of me would love to go back, not that you like to have too many regrets, but go back and actually live in those moments. Yeah. 
Yeah. Because you just don't enjoy it as much. While no. Because when, when you don't, when you're thinking about the next thing, the thing you're doing now becomes a task to be completed and gotten out of the way, as opposed to a task to enjoy mm. and make the most of. So that's that's been a big obstacle for me to overcome. And my second one is just just drinking and partying too much. You know, I've spent years, right? I've, I know I drink too much alcohol and I have done for years. I go out too much. I certainly, well, I don't go out as much anymore, but I still drink plenty. Mm. I have never met a person, Adam. I've not once ever have I met a person who gave up drinking and their life got worse. <laughs> <laughs> never have I met that person. <laughs> oh, poor old Lino. He's given up the booze. Things have gone downhill <laughs> yeah. for him. His, his career has hit the skid since he got off this. What's a word or phrase? You most overuse. Oh, look, I, I I swear on stage too much. That's so just general swear words. But the phrase I use too much there are just as I get older and more impatient and more, you know, I shake my head more at life. Probably what a fuckwit are the three <laughs> words I would utter more than any other three words. <laughs> I'm just looking at the world go by and I'll just... At least half a dozen times a day, I find myself going, what a fuckwit. So far, the phrases that our guests say they overuse the most include, that's bullshit, what a dick, and what a fuckwit. Moving on to question seven. How does Limo keep calm under pressure? By being prepared in advance. Yeah. So good good preparation for me. Mm. How, how I am under pressure is directly correlates with how prepared I am. Yes. So if I've done the work... I know what I'm doing. I've rehearsed it. I've done it plenty of times. Then when I'm in that high pressure moment, I'm I'm fine because I ba- I just back myself. You know that goal kicking thing with football, mm. where someone who's might have goal kicking yips, mm. and then they'll get a mantra in their head. And often the mantra is, "You've done this a thousand times at training. Just mm. do it again now." So. I kind of have that thing in my head. I've done it a thousand times. Just it's all, you can just do it again now. And if I'm not prepared, then if I'm in a real pressure moment, if I'm doing a gig that I'm badly prepared for and I'm dying, then I do that great thing where you get in your own head. So while I'm dying, you had this coming, mate. You didn't put the work in. (laughs) You deserve everything you're getting right now. There's two things I want to say. The first thing is it's not just related to to stand up with you. When you're being interviewed, when you're interviewing people, you're one of the most prepared radio people around. It's yes. really, it's always uh, a pleasure to be interviewed by you um, because you ask, you, you, you've just done the work and it's great. And the second thing is I want to make an observation is like when you haven't prepared, sometimes you get nervous. It's fine being nervous before something, okay, because you can get over that. Yes. But yeah. what's horrible is when you suddenly get nervous in the middle. I <laughs> and the nerves creep out of nowhere, and then you just yeah. suddenly you lose your shit. Like I was on the project, and I and I was fine, totally fine, because I was put in one of those. It was the um, we couldn't be at the desk; I had to be separated from everybody else. And this guy said something to me. There was a bit of dead air, and suddenly I got nervous in the middle of it. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, that's not. And that's good. the worst. You got you can't control that. You've got no. I mean, it's a little bit. 
It's hard to do a reset in the middle mm. of a live interview. Yeah. Yeah. I had one, and I I cannot remember who this was, but a big celebrity, and I would have done my research because I always research celebrities, but in the middle of the interview, they said something like, oh, yeah, but of course we filmed that. We finished filming that just before the accident. And I'm like, I remember going, I don't know what this accident is, but they've spoken about it like I should know what the accident is. And I can't now go, oh, what was the accident? That's right. But the thing is, it's also you're dealing with, like, you know, with all due respect, you are dealing with narcissists a lot of the time who yeah. expect everyone to know every facet of their lives. It's like yes. the interviewer has a life as well. And we can't, <laughs> we haven't been able to imbue every incident in the celebrity's life. Yeah. So the accident, so, what, what do you mean you don't know? <laughs> Come on, idiot. Um, uh, and I also tell myself in pressure situations that there's not one thing that can go wrong that's the end of the world. So we, we, can, we can recover from anything, any scenario. It's all yeah. good. I'm not, a heart, I'm not a heart surgeon. I'm not flying a plane. So every, every issue can be solved, every resolved. Yeah. You, yeah, you've, you've stared a whole lot of shit down. <laughs> Um, career high and career low, mate. Career high, you know, it's hard to differentiate between. Look, before the game, yes, that I TV that show, show. Oh, was just show. a joy. It went yeah. for 11 years. We got there every week. You know, we essentially caught up with our best mates yeah. every Saturday. We ate catering. We watched the footy. We talked shit about footy. We made jokes about the footy. And then we did a TV show about the footy. And then we all went out together afterwards every yeah, week. Yeah. It looked like it you just, did, you bastards. You looked like you had the best time on television. It was it was honestly joyous. And that it went for 11 years is just a gift. Mm. So that was incredible. Making Utopia is yes. just, you know, such a blessing that those, that Jane Kennedy initially, you know, cast me. And then they've kept me in the loop for four seasons of that show. It was just, it was just a joy for I mean, I haven't done a lot of scripted work. So right. I, don't, I don't have a lot to compare it to, but that experience of Utopia is amazing. The scripts are incredible. Yeah. And to be in a scene where Rob Sitch and I are doing dialogue, it's just, yeah, really have to pinch yourself sometimes. Uh, and probably the... The third thing that ties into something a bit deeper is hosting the Invictus Games a few years ago. Oh, yeah. In Sydney was amazing. And the Invictus Games, the brainchild of Prince Harry, and it's for injured uh, returned service people. And they compete in a sort of an Olympic game style and um, thing. It went for a week. But I, I love that because I'd done so much work for the troops. But for an individual career highlight, individual moment, I've been to the Middle East seven times doing shows for the troops. And there was... One time in Tarrant Cout, we'd lost two soldiers that week. It was a really bad week for the Aussie troops. So there was a lot of stress around the base and we put on a show and all most of the Aussie troops came out for it. And we put on a two-hour show and just shot the lights out. It was amazing, right? Just incredible show. Just the, the passion of these roaring soldiers, you know, just laughing their heads off at this incredible show. And so it was good from a show perspective, but then afterwards in the dust and the stress and the heat and the war of the Afghan desert to have an Aussie soldier come up to you and say, it goes, thanks, man. I really appreciate that. 
you took me back to Australia for two hours and I needed the break. Oh, mate. And it was like, oh, fuck, this is, I've done something worthwhile here, even if for just a tiny snippet of time. But that was amazing to hear him say, you took me back to Australia for two hours and I needed the break. It's like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Beautiful. So that was that was an incredible moment. And career lows, look, there were two standouts getting boned from gold after we went number one. That was a, that was a tough one to swallow. And the other one is probably, it didn't sting me as much as gold because I'd been at gold for a long time and I felt as though I'd really earned that success there and I'd earned the trust of the listeners at gold. But the second one is the footy show, which... We got boned after six weeks on the footy show. Oh, yeah, right. But that was very public. And we got Colin Vickery at the Herald Sun was just going for us because footy shows are always good clickbait. So we had a story every day for, I think, nine days online. Colin Vickery was just caning us on in articles. You know, and I get that he's got a job to do, but it was it. But I've never been trolled by a newspaper before. It was, it was weird. And then, we got sacked on a Thursday night after we'd done our sixth show. And that was the end of 25 years of the footy show. And to be hosting it when it ended, <laughs> it's not great. And the next morning I did an interview with the hot breakfast with Eddie and the team and Luke Darcy introduces me, he goes, all right, well, here he is the bloke that after 25 years, single handedly drove the footy show into the ground. <laughs> I said, Oh, thanks dust. It's a nice oh. introduction. But the funny the funny thing that happened, so I did an interview with Triple M, I did an interview with 3AW, and then I said to my wife, I said, that's it, I'm turning my phone off. I actually had a gig in Adelaide on the Friday, so I had to go to the airport. So I turned my phone off, I got in a cab, I went out to the airport. So that's it, I'm just going to, I have to switch off from it for the day. I don't want to do any more interviews, I don't want to talk to anyone else. And I got out to the airport, I went up to the Qantas Club. I hadn't looked at the paper that day yet, because I'd gone straight to the airport from home. What does everyone do in the Qantas Club? They're all reading the Herald Sun. So imagine a hundred people in the Qantas Club with the newspapers held out in front of them, the front page of the Herald Sun, right? In the biggest font I've seen to this day, I've never seen a bigger font on the front page of the Herald Sun. Four letters axed with my head right there on the front page of the Herald Sun. Oh my God. So man. I'm walking through the Qantas Club. And people are just looking over the tops of their newspapers and then, then checking the front page again. <laughs> oh, that is him. <laughs> How do you, do you have any advice for recovery? Because obviously most people, not, not, not to the extent of, you know, the, the big font on the front page of the Herald Sun and being fired so publicly and, you know, do you have any, any advice to people? How to embrace failure? Oh, look, you've just, you've just got to learn from it. You've got to, yeah. you, I, I, for me, I deal with it as soon as I can understand why it happened. Yeah. Then yeah. I'm fine. Yeah. So with the footy show that look, Oh mate. Yeah, we could have done a lot of things differently, but the ratings weren't great. It was a different show to what yeah. the show was before. It, it wasn't the footy show as people knew and loved it over a 25 year period. So logically all of that made sense to yeah. me. So yeah. So I yeah. was able to deal with the footy show fairly quickly. Yeah. Where's the gold one? You know, I 
I mean, we were number one. Done. It's it's and Joe Joe Stanley and I had been doing that show together, Joe and I, for less than two years. Now in radio, it's accepted that you give a show two years to see if it works. Well, yeah. we were number one within two years. And so logically, it just never made sense to me. Now, clearly, they thought they had a better option in their back pocket. And the option they went with, it turns out he's doing fine. But I still contend he's doing fine on the shoulders of what we felt. And he's very good at radio, by the way. He's an excellent broadcaster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, right. and absolutely deserves success. But I think we, you know, put that that shift in a really great position. It's like a relationship that ends and you're going, what, what happened there? Fuck. And, yeah, you know. yeah. So for me, if, as long as I can, it's the same as when you die at a gig. If I can walk away and understand why I died at the gig, then yeah. it's all good. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. It, but you, you still haven't worked out what, what happened with gold, though. It's like no, I'm still, no, I'm still, confounding. I'm still a bit confused about that one. Okay, final question, mate. Do you have a motto? I have two. One is, and I'll give you the context, when I was doing, you know, one of my first ever gigs, it was the week that Kurt Cobain took his own life, okay? Yeah, yeah. And I was about the fifth act on stage. All of the comedians before me had tried to do Kurt Cobain jokes. Oh. And, of course, it was, it was not working. No. And the room was flat as a tack. And the guy who ran the room is a comedian from Canada called Jack Smith. And Jack came up to me and he goes, you haven't got any Kurt Cobain jokes, have you? <laughs> and I said, no, mate, no, no. And he said, okay, I need you to lift this room. I said, okay, Jack. And he looked me in the eye and he said, big smiles, it's the greatest night of your life. Oh, wow. Now that wow. line I've repeated to myself, God, thousands of times over the years before I've gone on stage. Big smiles, it's the greatest night of your life. It's great. Yeah. And it's a good... It's a good little motivator. So no matter what state the evening's in, no matter where I'm at personally in my life, big smiles is the greatest night of your life. So it's good showbiz advice. Wonderful. And the other bit of advice, the other um, motto, which I think you'll like because it comes from a cricketer, is, in fact, we'll play a game with this one. I'll tell you what it is and you see if you can guess the cricketer. Oh, God. Okay. And it's really simple. Okay. Oh, dear. Really simple. But I use so often in my head, if I'm faced with a daunting task, I, this is the thing that I keep saying to myself. And it's just as simple as this. You just keep plugging away. You just keep plugging away. Like I'll give it. you a clue. It was a fast bowler and he was being asked about what it was like bowling on the subcontinent as a fast bowler on a really hot day when you can't get any wickets. Okay. And he said, you just keep plugging away. The great Dennis Keith Lilly. Yeah. I mean, he did, didn't he? And he put the headband on in the end. And-, and you just keep plugging away. And, you know, it's just such, it's so simple, but I just, you know, it's like that you just put one foot after the other. But I always say to myself, and it could be, it could be a task around the house. Yeah. I could be emptying the dishwasher and it annoys me. Okay, yeah, just yeah. keep plugging away. You'll finish it. Yeah. And your luck will change. Just keep plugging away. It's, it's like, you know, DK, someone's going to make a mistake. It might be all right. It might be all right, exactly. Thank you so much for tuning into 10 Questions. We'd also like to thank all the guests that appear on the show. And if you have a minute, please subscribe via iTunes or your podcast app and leave us a rating. 
If you have any questions or comments, you can reach me on Twitter at Adam Zwa. So until next time, thanks for joining us. <laughs>